We're joined today by uh, Pastor Chris Mueller of East Valley Bible Church. It's a privilege to have him in studio. Chris, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Nam. Um, Chris, uh, just to start off, why don't we just uh, ask you for a little bit of background, maybe how you came to know the Lord. Okay. Well, I was born at an early age and ultimately uh, was in an agnostic home and had parents who didn't oppose God. Uh, They didn't affirm him, uh, but they were unwilling to take any form of step towards him or towards church. Uh, Through the process of the late 60s and early 70s, my brother and sister had come to Christ through the Jesus movement that was centered around Calvary Chapel. And my folks were pretty upset about this whole transformation that had occurred in their lives. They liked it. They liked the way that they uh, submitted and had great attitudes in the home, but they didn't like the priority change and the priority shift towards pursuing Christ and his work over anything else. And so this was difficult for our folks. And what was amazing was that it really made a huge impact on their lives because uh, later on they began to have marital difficulties And as they did, I began to rebel as the youngest in the family about age 13. And so in order to straighten me out, they decided that they would go to church and they would drag me with them. And so for a period of about four weeks, we went to a different church each week and were exposed to the gospel and to the Bible, etc. And then after the church, they would say to me, how did you like it? And of course, being a typical 13-year-old, I said, I didn't like it at all. So the next week we went somewhere else. And they did that for, like I said, about four weeks. And on the fourth week, we went to a church that seemed to click with them. And they came home and they asked me again, well, how did you like it? And I said, I didn't like it at all. And they said, tough, we're going back. And so we began to go to this church, which was a a small reformed church in Buena Park, California. And through the process, uh, my mom, uh, who was, uh, you know, kind of guilt-ridden and struggling in their marriage, uh, came to Christ, and God had drawn her to himself, and, and there was definitely a conversion there. And later, not too much longer after that, my father came to know Christ and submitted to him, and then they began to work on me. And so they recognized the fact that my brother was a believer and my sister was a believer, and that I was not, and so they began to kind of really hammer on me, and the more they hammered, the more I rebelled. And so for a period of about oh, four years, though I had prayed a prayer and went to church um, pretty much faithfully, they uh, they were very concerned about where I was at with the Lord. By the time I get to my senior year, I was definitely uh, trying everything that the world had to offer. And interesting enough, it wasn't like a long series of uh, drugs or a long series of this or that. It was just I tried everything once and found that it was very unsatisfying and that my heart was very empty, and that I was really guilty, and struggling over that, and through the process of God's grace and faithfulness, a young gal had come back from Hume Lake Christian Camps, and she was on fire for Christ, and I was attracted to her, not because of her looks, but because of her witness and testimony, and I began to ask her about what it meant to truly follow Christ. And so through the period of, uh, just after I graduated from high school for about the next two months, I had probably prayed to receive Christ two or three hundred times and really desired to follow him. And then I realized somewhere in November of 74, uh, standing in the lunchroom at Cypress Junior College with a French dip sandwich on my tray, uh, I all of a sudden realized that I was truly born again, that God had changed my heart, that 
everything that I valued in the past was no longer valued, and I valued now his word and his life and his mission, and I just wanted to serve him the rest of my life. And so from there, I got involved in our church, which I consider kind of a, a, a more dead, I used to call it the Church of the Living Dead, uh, <laughs> Reformed Church. It was really, there were a lot of unsaved people there, and some saved, and uh through that process, I really tried to make things happen there and got involved in the youth ministry. And and then through a, a process of uh, going to Hume Lake Christian Camps and then beginning to work for Youth for Christ Campus Life, I began to sense God's calling on my life and asked my folks if I could go to Biola College. And they allowed me to go there for my major and also for Bible, which was very life-transforming while I went to a junior college for all my rest of my units and again, through that process, it began to become obvious that God had set me apart to be a teacher uh, of his word. And so uh, when it came time to go to seminary, I thought, well, I should go uh, to seminary simply because I should be the best teacher that I could possibly be for his glory. And so I began to head toward Dallas Seminary in my last year at Hume Lake, my fifth summer there. Um, some weird circumstances occurred where I began to network with the junior high pastor at Grace Community Church. And he was leaving the junior high ministry, and as God saw fit, no one there at the church was crazy enough to uh, do the junior high ministry. <laughs> they they couldn't find someone who was, you know, loved Jesus but also was nuts. And so they began to look at me, and they hired me uh, out of my last summer, and I you know, went there. And so I went to Talbot Seminary and became a pastor at Grace Community Church. And through the course of serving there, I was discipled by John MacArthur, uh, we spent a lot of time together and went on trips together, and uh, he uh, poured into my life and became my father in the faith. And uh, ultimately, they demoted me to college ministry and began to work in the Lagos, <laughs> uh, the adult Sunday school class, and, and from there uh, began to teach even in the seminary. And uh, since then, uh, after about 10 years there and being John's assistant, uh, I finally left and became a senior pastor for 11 years, and now I'm, I'm training men in a church-based seminary at East Valley Bible Church called the Training Center. And it's a church-based seminary where we, uh, through the process of ministry, uh, train men to really be equipped to serve as elders, pastors, missionary church planters, and key laymen around the country and around the world. Well, Chris, um, uh, I, I appreciate you saying that uh, in junior high school, they look for someone that loved God and was nuts. And, and those two descriptions might might be the best two descriptions uh, for you and for your ministry. Uh, there's a lot of guys that, that, that I have known and that have looked to you and that have gained a great deal um, in terms of uh, your example, in terms of your passion for the things of the Lord, as well as your energy. And, uh, and they, have, uh, they have been positively influenced because of the person that you are. So tell us something about that passion that you have, in particular in training men. Maybe, maybe you could start off by telling us something about the, the training center that you're working at and, and some of the things that you guys do there. Well, the training center is a, a, a kind of a program, for lack of a better word, to facilitate the mentoring of men uh, towards ministry. It uh, is not a classroom setting per se, but a situation where we can mentor men through the word and involve them in a relational way towards other men who are pastors to be impacted by them, to prepare them for the work of the ministry in the local church, which I consider very, very difficult and it requires a, a great 
uh, level of preparation for men to be able to understand not just the dynamics of interpreting the word or preaching the word, but also how to deal with people and how to establish priorities for a church family. Uh, so many things are involved in this work. So the training center, basically what we do is we, it's a three-year program. The men meet for uh, just under three hours once a week, and then they have about anywhere from six to 16 hours of homework or preparation or ministry experience that they need to be involved in throughout the week, every week. So it's quite a big commitment on their part. But we're trying to design it in such a way that they can still maintain their ministry, and they, uh, in fact, are required to be in a shepherding role and some aspect of a church, and then also that they would all not violate their relationship with their wife or their children, etc. So it is quite a commitment, uh, but it's also a commitment that's part of the life of a local church. And our desire is to walk them through all the word and all theology and all practical theology. Back when I was at Grace Church and uh, at Talbot Seminary and then when the Master Seminary began, I taught the senior theology class, and that class at the very beginning was a class that the seminarians could not graduate unless they passed my class. And the class basically went through the entire scripture, all theology and all practical theology, and they, it really was the time for the seminarians to pull it all together to get a really good idea of what the word was and see things in context and pull all those independent classes that were taken out of order into a kind of a real systematic approach where they could see that not only the historicity of the Bible, but how the Bible was so practically used in everyday ministry and to be able to, uh, in a sense, draw their ministry gun and not to pull the trigger and have it go click, but to have, uh, you know, have their bullets loaded. And so as we did that year after year, I began to install that same process in the training center where the first year we go through all the Bible, all theology, and all practical theology. The reason we don't spread it out is because by the time, if we did Bible first year and theology second year and practical theology third year, by the time we get to third year, they've forgotten the first year. And so we want them to be have so fresh that when they're dealing with practical issues of someone who's going through a counseling problem or someone whose husband is leaving them, that they're thinking about all the scriptures that they would come to bear on that particular situation. So we train them in the Bible theology and practical theology the first year. The second year, we teach them about uh, exegesis. We teach them uh, beginning Greek, and then we walk through sermon prep, and then we also talk to them about pastoral ministry, and everything's integrated. So, for example, the first day we would talk about loving God. One of the students would preach Matthew 22 about the love of the Lord, and then another student would do some reading on the love of God in a pastoral theology book or pastoral ministry book. And then we would then use that entire day to talk about the love of God as a discussion and how that should interplay with everything that we do in ministry. Plus, we're evaluating the guy's sermon, his approach to Greek, and everything else along the way in the process. So everything's integrated into a life approach. And so we do that all year long. Uh, all of theology and all of Greek and all of pastoral ministry is all intertwined in this entire process. And at the same time, they're preaching and teaching all the time, and they're shepherding others, and then we're bringing all those life experiences back into this gathering. I, I, I don't like calling it a classroom, but a gathering where we mentor one another and we help one another work that through. So they're building relationships. And as they're doing, men are hearing each other's passions and they're getting to know one another. By the time we get to the third year, 
We're doing advanced exegesis, advanced Greek, and we're working through direction of ministry, how to lead change, how to take people through, how to lead other elders, uh, how to be a part of a team, how to be the individual leader. And guys are really beginning to acknowledge who they are and where they fit in God's kingdom and what kind of leader they are. So we do, do that three-year process and really try to cultivate guys that, that, that understand themselves. They understand how God has made them. Because my view of discipleship is not putting something in someone, but just drawing out what Christ has already put in them and getting themselves out of the way because we're complete in Christ. So the, the idea is to say more of him and less of you and how has he made you and what measure of faith has he given you to minister the gifts he's given you. And then we really work hard at that. So by the time they graduate, they've got a pretty good idea where they fit in the kingdom and where they can go and be useful for his glory. And that's really our main goal. Uh, we've seen great, great fruitful, fruitfulness from that and just enjoy that process. I love meeting with guys. It's two and a half hours. We start at 5 a.m. I get up at 3.20, get to church by 4, oh, and um, get prepared, get the classroom all ready to go, pray up, and then for two and a half hours, the fastest two and a half hours of my day, and it's just, it's just I'm so invigorated when I'm done. It's crazy. Um, it's exhausting in one sense, but it's so exciting to see what God is doing in the lives of those men that uh, I can't wait to get there. Chris, uh, you mentioned that you were uh, mentored, discipled by uh, John MacArthur, and uh, our folks are very familiar with his ministry. And I'm sure they're um, wondering the same thing I am, uh, having never met anyone who was discipled by John MacArthur. What are some of the things that he taught you or the impact he made on your life and, and you know what you really caught from that experience? Well, one of the things... Uh, there's so many things that I could say. I mean, John is my Paul. I believe that I'm a Timothy to him. And he uh, was a father to me and an uncle and a family member. He and Patricia were very precious to me. And you have to understand that that was a different time, too. Uh, it was before the seminary, before the college. Uh, it was a unique time in Grace Church's history. And John would look for young men to invest in. And he uh, set apart some time to be with me, to invest in me, to tell me that he could, I could ask him any question any time. And the, part of the reason that he liked being with me, uh, he'd tell me this all the time, is he, he could always read me. Yeah, you know, I wasn't a very good poker player. And so he would just, he goes, I always know what you're thinking, you know. And and that was really a joy to him. And, and it was very exciting to spend time with him, uh, watch him parent his children. His children were part of my youth ministry. His kids went through my junior high ministry, so we had a great relationship that way. And uh, I was really a part of their home. Uh, I think, uh, you know, every year I was probably in his home two or three times, if not four or five or six. And we, we would just spend time that way. And then I would travel with him when he would speak on occasion. And the impactful thing was that John was who he was. I mean, he he is who he says he is. He's not any different at home than he is at church. He's the same guy. Um, and the issues in his life uh, that he battles with, uh, he's very open about. Uh, his wife, uh, Patricia, is very open about. And he's a genuine godly man. And there, there was just the thing, the reason his kids turned out so wonderful was because they saw at home what they saw at church, and they saw at church what they saw at home. There's no inconsistency. And so when he was on the road, he was a man of integrity. So instead of going into a bar even though we'd never have anything there, but to go in and watch a football game, which he desperately wanted to see, 
Um, we won't talk about football addiction, but he really wanted to see that game. He would stand in the middle of the hallway outside so no one would ever think that he'd be in the bar and watch the game at, at 50 feet away. That was the kind of man he was. Uh, he was the real deal. He still is. And so, you know, when you see that time and time again, you begin to recognize that, hey, that's the key. Just be a man of integrity and be who you are all the time and know who you are and know what you're not. And, you know, build your life around your strengths and then build other guys around your weaknesses so that you basically have a strong ministry. So, uh, you know, he had a great marriage, uh, still does. Uh, he's got incredible children, incredible grandchildren. And it's basically because he just is who he is. He's just consistent. He's faithful. He's the same guy. Uh, and he's a regular dude. Uh, you know, and, and the way that God built him, you know, he's... Uh, not that he's above, you know, compromise in the area of purity. I mean, there's always three areas you want to check on every pastor, gold, girls, or glory. Those are the three issues. And so, you know, his issue would not be gold because he has the gift of giving. And so anytime he ever had extra money, he'd always try to give it to somebody. And and he's still to that day. I mean, there was a time that he tried to give me a loan so I could put it down on a house. And I didn't let him do it, but he would have done it. He would have taken a second on his own house so I could have a down payment on my house. That's the kind of man he was. And then secondly, uh, you know, as far as girls, it, it just wasn't an issue for him. Certain guys are built that way. Obviously, he's not above stumbling, but it just wasn't his propensity. That just was never an issue for him. And then if there was an issue of glory and pride, I mean, that would be the one thing that he would say that he would struggle with. And Patricia was always there reminding him of who he is and keeping him earthbound. And uh, and and it was an incredible relationship. You know, God protected him by giving him the wife that he gave him. And so, you know, it keeps him humble and, and, and sincere and genuine and honest. And and I just that's why I love him. You know, I mean, I'll always uh, consider him my Paul and uh, I don't care what happens. He'll always be someone that I would defend to the nth degree uh, because I know he's the real guy. And when people are, you know, people can be critical of what he teaches if they have a good argument. But I just don't ever allow people to be critical of him personally because I know who he is. And it's just like, I'm like, you're, you're nuts. This man is the real thing. And, um, you know, God has used him to do incredible things. Uh, his commentary series, the books that he writes, you know, he's the one guy who brings the church back on every aberrancy. You know, whenever the church is going to swing somewhere wacky, he's going to bring it back down, back to the scripture. And that was his role. And I don't know who's going to take his place, because when he's gone, there's going to be a huge hole. Uh, so anyway, that's my affection for MacArthur. Chris, going back to the the issue of uh, training men, I know... Uh, um, uh, obviously, John MacArthur's had a great influence in your life. You've had a tremendous influence in the lives of many men. Um, let me bring it down, because you have always pastored fairly large congregations. And uh, um, the little church that you're at right now, 4,000 people, uh, most of us, uh, the guys that might be listening to this uh, uh, particular interview, are ministering in, in a lot smaller context. So if you, uh, let's put it in this scenario, if you had recently been hired to be the senior pastor of, of a church of 100 people, what would you do? How would you go about the process of training men? Well, that's a really good question in the sense that I do enjoy a large church. And right now I am not the senior pastor of our church. But because of that, I'm freed up to be able to pour 70% of my time into men in a training context. And not every guy in a small church can do that. In fact, they can't do that. And so I recognize my privileged position 
and, and where I'm at to be able to just invest so much time in the men, not just in the classroom setting, but all throughout the week to see them, to see their families, to mentor them through processes of ministry. But if I was in a situation where I was the senior pastor of a church and I'm trying to then train up the next generation, ultimately, it's funny, I'll, I'll look for guys uh, who um, obviously have character. Uh, they really want to pursue the Lord. They really want to honor Him. Uh, they really want to emulate those character qualities that are found in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Uh, you know, they really have a desire uh, to be an elder, to be someone who is influential. Maybe they're not going to be that person, but they really have that desire to fill out, to pursue that. I'm also looking for men who have a level of giftedness, where you see that they're at least apt to teach, if not gifted to teach or preach. So I'm going to look for guys that are like that. And uh, I'm going to look for guys, too, that uh, seem to be manifesting fruit, that uh, as they teach, it's not just that people go, wow, what a great message, or thank you for that, or it's more that people's lives change. And I'm going to look for life change that remains, John 15, you know, that it's fruit that remains. So I'm going to look for those things. And, and usually there's some funny things that happen with men. Uh, sometimes, uh, if you're not in tune with this, you'll miss it. If a guy's an equipper, uh, to equip means to mend the net, fix the bone. In other words, you're looking for what's lacking. There's a hole in the net and you want to fix it. So when a equipper comes and talks to you, they're going to talk to you about what's wrong with the church. They're going to talk to you about what they see wrong. What's wrong with it? What's missing? We don't do this enough. We don't do this very well. They're going to look at stuff with those kind of eyes and if they're really meant to be an equipper, then all you have to do is teach them to say, well, more than just bring that out, why don't you study the word and depend on the spirit of God and let's see about some way about fixing that hole uh, with God's word, God's strength and God's way. And so you begin to see this heart of an equipper as they look at the church with the eyes that tend to sp- spot the broken bone and spot the hole in the net. And so a lot of times young men who are senior pastors, they, they shy away from critical men. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's a difference between being critical and being genuinely discerning. And a discerning individual is someone, a critical guy is just tearing down people. A discerning guy is looking to see what's wrong and wondering what they can do about it. You know, what, what do we do about it? How can we fix it? How can we build up the flock? So I'm looking for guys with that kind of character, that kind of fruit, that kind of, in a sense, affirmation and giftedness, and then trying to assist them to move in a direction towards uh, what it means to really be an equipper, to be a fixer, to be someone who loves to build up the body. And once I begin to acknowledge that, I may point them towards certain elements of ministry and watch them to see if they produce fruit. Then I'm going to draw them to myself as much as I can and spend time with them. And then really cultivate an environment where it can be very honest. Uh, when, when I say character, uh, there's a lot of guys that can look really, really good in the church. They can bring their squeaky clean family in, you know, and the kids are all dressed in red and white uniforms and all that kind of stuff. But it really doesn't mean anything. What, what really means something is someone who's pursuing Christ, wanting to please him, wanting to live in obedience. But they often admit their failures. They often admit their struggles and they're in that process of going, I know I'm never going to be perfect in this life. I know I'm never going to achieve. And it's not a, a self-made righteousness that they're extolling or that you're looking at. It's a Christ-manifested righteousness. They're not depending on their own righteousness. They're depending on the righteous of another. And that's vital. That's a very subtle distinction. 
but there's a lot of Pharisees out there that think they're something when they're nothing. So I'm looking for character that's honest. I'm looking for a guy who loves the word and they just love it like a newborn babe. First Peter 2, 2. They long for it. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. But it's not just that they filled their head with knowledge, but that that content is alive, that it's living and active in their own life first and then in others' lives. When you read Nehemiah 8.8 8 and Ezra 7.10, it's this idea that they studied the word, they applied it to their own life, and they taught it frequently, that kind of whole process. And so I'm looking for that. I'm looking for someone who's out to communicate God's word. Uh, I said that stuttering, <laughs> but communicate God's word. And they do that in a way, I, I use an acrostic called PACER. Practical, accurate, clear, engaging, and relevant. And I know relevant is a, a, an evil buzzword today. Uh, but I think that in any context, when you go to speak to people, you want to be relevant to their situation, who they are. If you're a missionary and you go to some other country, you're going to be relevant to their situation. So I, I, I don't see that as that's the primary goal, because if you're not accurate, you've just violated everything that is important and we value. Because it's not our word, it's his word. We have no right to mess with it. So I'm not in any way undermining authorial intent or sound doctrine. But I want to be practical. So where people are living and I'm going to be accurate and determine authorial intent. And I want to be clear because if you're not clear, people don't get it. And if they don't get it, you're frustrating the spirit of God in their own lives. I want to be engaging so people want to hear the word, that they sense that it's important and it's vital. And I want to be relevant to where they're at in their situation and understand that people are coming, they're hurting, they're struggling. They have a whole lot of baggage. There's issues that you'll never know about that they're working on, and I want to be sensitive to that. And each situation demands its own sense of sensitivity, and I think that's why elders are shepherds, that pastors are shepherds. They need to know their people so they can, in a sense, address the word to where people are at and bring them to a point of moving more towards Christ-likeness, and then those, hopefully, that don't know Christ are be, be drawn to Christ. And then, ultimately, I'm also looking for guys with chemistry. There are guys who just are never going to work with other guys. Now, in some cases, and this is rare, they're kind of an evangelist. Evangelists are different birds. And you give them as long a rope as you possibly can, as long as they have a healthy relationship to the local church, give them as much freedom as possible in order to accomplish their mission. They're freewheeling guys, and you've got to let them go. They're the exception. Everybody else has got to work with other people. And, and even the evangelist has got to grow to a point where they work with other people and understand and instead of being critical of other people. I mean, we all look at the world through weird lenses. We look at the world through our giftedness. So if you've got the gift of mercy, you're going to go to your friends and you're going to say, we're not merciful enough. You're not merciful enough because you're looking through the lens of mercy. And if you're a teacher, you're going to, we don't teach the word enough. You're going to always look through the world through that lens. An evangelist is going to go, we're not reaching Christ enough. We're not proclaiming the gospel enough. We need to be doing more of that. So you're always going to do that. But you also need to recognize that you are not everything. And that you've got to work with other men. And you've got weaknesses. And you want to build in your life guys who are going to be strong around your weaknesses. And you say, well, what about overcoming your weaknesses? Well, yeah, that's true. You don't want them to hamper your life. But at the same time, you need to recognize you're going to be who you are the rest of your life. And so build around you men who are going to impact you in the area of your weaknesses. So I'm looking for guys who understand that they need to work as a team and they can work with others and listen to others. I call that chemistry. And the last one is commitment. I want guys who are passionate. 
not just committed to Christ and I'm committed and they have platitudes and when they say God, they say God and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm looking for guys who are passionate to do something about it. Not just be a hearer of the word, be a doer and to set things in motion and have the courage to fail, to get out there passionately and, and try something and learn from that. <clears throat> so as a young guy in a church, you say, how can you do all that? Well, you know, you're going to spend a lot of time studying, you're going to a lot of time shepherding. But if you don't prioritize spending time with men and somehow, some way investing into them, uh, then you're going to miss the boat. And your church is never going to grow stronger uh, unless you reproduce yourself into other leaders. So somehow, sometime during the day, during the week, you've got to have time with men. Uh, Chris, uh, we uh, like to gain some uh, wisdom as far as... Uh what would be the best way to approach uh, discipleship, uh, men to men and women to women? Maybe you could uh, shed some light on that for us. Well, when I say spend time with men uh, in the previous question, uh, there's a whole gamut of understanding that people have or ideas or perspectives that people have on this. And a lot of it has to do with how God made you. And what's interesting is... When you look at the scripture, there's not a whole lot of one-on-one discipleship going on. There's a lot of one-on-two, one-on-three, Jesus with, you know, the one, John, and then the three, and then the 12, and then the 70, and then the 120, and then the 500. So there's varying levels, and then the multitudes, there's varying levels of relationship. And this is really a confused issue. Uh, It seems like the closer that you are, the more personal you are uh, in a one-on-one, it has the great potential of having a great impact and great teeth, I call it, to, to make impact into someone's life. The downside to that is that the more time you spend with a singular individual, you'll end up becoming more like that individual and less like Christ. And so there's a downside to that. In the group settings uh, where people are mentored or discipled, uh, there's a great ability to become more like Christ, but also it can lend toward less teeth, less accountability, less firm, let's deal with the singular issue. And so, again, you want to see if you can get the best of both worlds. When it comes to discipleship, it's really interesting, and I I can't quote you exact numbers, but there are hundreds of references to being a disciple in the gospel. There are maybe 20 references to being a disciple in the book of Acts, and there are no references to being a disciple in the epistles. And the reason for that is that it's really the local church that disciples. It's how do we become like Jesus in mentoring people, the local church. Now, all of us fit into that role. That's why Nam, when he preaches on Sunday, he really is discipling. But he's also, you know, trusting that others are going to have one anothering relationships and they're going to be discipling and this whole body together. That's why you can go to a weak church and not really grow. And where you can go to a strong church and your growth takes off because you're a part of a group of people that are pursuing Christ together, you're going to be more impacted by those people. So generally speaking, when I talk about discipleship, God's view, I believe, is the body of Christ is going to have the greatest impact in someone's life, more so than any one singular individual. Uh, at the same time, singular individuals can have great impact in your life, like John MacArthur and mine, and etc. And so there are other people that are going to have huge influence in you, but in the context of the local church is really where it blossoms. A solo discipleship relationship outside the context of the local church is really going to be weak and anemic, ultimately. It's not going to have the same kind of impact. 
Now, when it comes to men discipling men and women discipling women, I usually go to two passages of Scripture. For men, it would be 1 Peter 5, let the younger men submit to the older men. And then for women, I go to Titus 2, let the younger women uh, be trained by the older women. It always cracks me up when I think about the older women and the younger women. If you're a single gal and you want to be trained in the qualities that Titus upholds for young women, which is to love their husbands, love their children, be faithful, pure, you know, workers at home, those kind of things, that it it almost requires an older woman to do it. Because he says, it says older women train the younger women to love their husbands. And the word love there is not agape, but it's phileo. It's actually in modern translation, you could say older women train the younger women to like their husbands, which teaches me a couple of things. One is that husbands aren't that likable, that men are beasts. And so it really takes an older woman to kind of help a younger woman to really learn how to love her man, to like her man. And so that relationship, I think, is very vital. And there are things that older women have learned about being a, a wife and a mother that really have to be passed on. And so there's a huge responsibility on these older women to pass that responsibility on to the younger women. And the same thing with older men. There's wisdom that comes. Uh, young men need to be, like First John talks about, those who you know, go to war with the word. You know, they're they're going to fight the enemy. They're going to stand on truth. They're going to be men of convictions. And you want that. You desire that. You should never squelch that. But there's also a tempering that goes on that older men bring to the table. And that's why they need to submit to these older men. And sometimes they'll look at the older men and go, you guys are too soft. And really what these older men are saying, let's be gracious. Because Jesus, when he came, he was full of grace and truth, it says in John 1. And then you look at him cleaning out the temple in John 2, which is definitely an act of truth. And then you look at him turning water into wine in the same chapter, which is an action of grace, not required. And so you see this incredible balance in the Lord. Totally truth, totally grace. And that's what you want to build in. And younger men need to see the graciousness and the maturity and the wisdom and the love of the Father being infused in their relationships. And they need to learn that from older men. And these younger women need to learn how to be gracious and how to love their husbands in the way that God made men. And uh, that can only be learned by an older woman. So it's absolutely vital. In fact, I think it even filters into counseling. Uh, At my church, I don't counsel women. Older women counsel women and older men counsel men. And we leave it that way because, uh, uh, to be honest with you, there's several reasons for it. One is it follows the biblical model. Two, a young woman can snow me. Because all she has to do is start breaking down into tears. And I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. Okay. And it's like, you know, and an older woman, and I've seen them in these situations, they break down into tears. They go, knock it off, honey. You know, get on with it. No, no, we're, not, we're not snowed by this. You know, and they, and they call them to obedience where, you know, I would maybe be prone to be extra merciful or really an idiot. You know, so in those kind of situations. So older women know how to read younger women. They know how they think. They know how they work. They know what games they play. They won't let them play those games. And older men know how young men are. They're full of juice. You know, they're full of energy and and desire and passion. And and they need to be tempered and and how to do that. So, you know, men understand men and women understand women. And really, you know, the goal would be that ultimately someday someone would be able to say, I understand women. A man would be able to say, but I doubt that's going to happen. So ultimately, it's got to be women to women, men to men. Chris, uh, we just want to thank you so much for being able to share some wisdom with us, sit with us and uh, just uh, talk about some of these things that relate to 
church and in particular in terms of training men and discipleship uh, uh, wonderful words of wisdom we appreciate you uh, taking time out to do that with us it was an honor thanks nam okay